This episode of Pupil Pod is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to the Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Lisa Fulner. Dr. Fulner is a cataract, refractive, and aesthetic surgeon in Bel Air, Maryland. Dr. Fulner, thank you again for joining me tonight. Thank you, Scylla. It's an honor to be here and uh, contribute to your amazing project that you're doing. Let's get right into the case. So this is a 73-year-old woman who presents to your clinic three years after cataract surgery in the right eye. She notes that over the last year, she has noticed a slow decline in her vision in that eye. She denies any other ocular conditions, surgeries, and any new traumas. Dr. Fulner, so you have this patient presenting with a change in vision three years after cataract surgery. How would you approach this patient? What are some of the things that we need to make sure that we ask or do when we see this patient in our clinics? So this is a great case and we see this all the time. I think it's easy to fall into the trap that this woman had cataract surgery in her right eye three years ago. But we all know that we have to start very broadly when we think about what might be causing the symptoms that our patients are complaining of. We very nicely have um, in the history that she had surgery in her right eye and that the problem is in that same eye. We also know that it's been a slow decline. So that's an important piece of information. Knowing whether it's one eye or both eyes, whether it's been a sudden change or a slow decline are very important um, pieces of information to kind of help guide our minds into what direction we're thinking the problem might be in. Uh, Other questions that we want to ask are, um, are these symptoms constant or do they fluctuate? We can easily um, get trapped by thinking or assuming that the patient means that this is a constant problem. And if you ask them, they'll say, well, it only happens after I read or late at night, or they have other times when it happens and they aren't able to distinguish that. And it's our job to pull that out of them. Um, We also need to ask associated symptoms, things like, do you have any flashes or new floaters? Is this vision loss generalized over your whole visual field, or is it in the center of your vision or just part of your vision? Are there any other associated symptoms like foreign body sensations or light sensitivity? So once we've gathered any other symptoms or signs that might help us guide us down that pathway, we can sort of go on to look at other things that might influence the loss of vision in one eye. A history of diabetes would be important, macular degeneration. One of my favorites is ocular surface disease. It's a great masquerader for 
um, major, you know, visual changes that people have, even, you know, after cataract surgery, um, ocular surface disease can play a, a big role. Looking at their um, medication list, things that might contribute to ocular surface disease or other things that could key us into problems that um, they're having with their vision. A history of glaucoma, of course, is important. And practices that co-manage, we may have lost this patient for the last three years and their referring doctor may have started them on a glaucoma medication or may have had some visual field loss that we don't know about. Um, Pseudoexfoliation, of course, is very important, especially after cataract surgery can cause, you know, zonular, um, you know, weakness and dislocation or movement of the lens to cause decreased vision. And you already mentioned there was no history of trauma, but obviously, if we didn't know that, that would be an important thing to ask. You know, once you've decided um, that all of those other things don't play an important role in this, uh, at, you know, going back into your record and figuring out how did you do that surgery? Was it a traditional ultrasound surgery? Was it a femto surgery? So when we put toric lenses in, it's very important because um, if we have irregular fibrosis of the anterior capsule, we can get a little rotation of that lens and even some tilt in that lens. And for that reason, I personally do um, femto cataract surgery on all um, toric uh, lens patients and any other presbyopic IOL patients because I'm really looking for that uniform fibrosis, that well-centered, um, you know, well-sized capsulorexis to prevent things like that. But that's always something we have to think about. Um, you know, in, in, in multifocals and extended depth of focus or um, a trifocal lens, you know, ocular surface disease, again, is very important to consider as um, a cause of loss of vision. And if this patient had it in one eye, ocular surface disease is going to play a greater role in that eye if it has uh, one of those types of presbyopic lenses. And again, if it's a toric and a presbyopic lens and they have rotation of the lens or tilt, that's going to have a dramatic effect on their vision through that lens. And then, of course, posterior capsular opacity, which is fairly common after cataract surgery has to be on our differential diagnosis. Thank you. I mean, you're really highlighting the importance of thoroughly examining and asking the patient questions because sometimes we jump right to our conclusion. We have anchoring bias, but in these patients that are unhappy with their vision or coming with a decline in their vision, we need to start broadly and we really need to think about all of the options. So in this patient, on review of their history, you do note that a monofocal IOL was used and that there were no intraoperative or postoperative complications. Her vision was 2020 uncorrected at her post-op month one follow-up, and she has since been lost to follow-up from any eye doctors. Today, her refraction is minus a quarter diopter in both the right eye and the left eye, and despite seeing 2020 best corrected, she still notes a blurriness in the right eye. On exam, you do notice that there is no PCL, but on careful examination of the posterior capsule and the IOL, you actually begin to notice turbid fluid. Now, Dr. Fulner, I had a patient just like this several years ago as a resident. These are easy to miss cases. At this point, what is your leading diagnosis and what are some of the things that we need to know about this diagnosis? So 
Um, as you mentioned, you don't see this very often, and sometimes it's more obvious than other times. I think once you've eliminated, um, you know, you've looked at placido uh, rings, you've looked at the topography, you've refracted the patient, you notice that the posterior capsule is clear, your, their retina is okay, their optic nerve is okay, you really need to look for this. You need to actively look for this. I think sometimes we dismiss these patients because, hey, your refraction is great, your retina is good, your optic nerve is good, your ocular surface is fantastic. I don't know why you have this problem. And so we sometimes have to look carefully for it. And other times, um, it's very obvious and it has several different names. Uh, I think the most co common name is capsular bag distension syndrome. Um, it's also known as capsular block syndrome and capsular bag hyperdistension, um, capsular excess block syndrome, which basically kind of describes what the problem is right there. Um, it occurs in a, less than 1% of patients, but it can make a huge difference in um, your relationship with that patient. So if you diagnose this and treat this, instead of just telling the patient there's nothing you can do for them, that can really go a long way in your credibility and your relationship and customer service for that patient. Um, it's characterized by an accumulation of fluid between the posterior chamber um, lens and the posterior capsule. Sometimes you can see it in the slit lamp, you can see it layered out. It's kind of a turbid um, fluid that layers out behind the lens. Um, and that fluid causes the posterior capsule to distend. And sometimes um, it pushes the IOL forward. And this patient may come in with a um, myopic shift, rarely a hyperopic shift, depending on where that fluid is kind of hitting the edge of that optic. This patient um, doesn't seem to have that myopic shift. So, you know, really looking for that in this patient and the layering of that fluid um, would be really, um, uh, you know, an important step. There was a, a big study in 2008 that showed that there were some risk factors for the development of this. And we can imagine that people with long eyes, you know, where that lens iris diaphragm is pushed posterior, the bag is often larger than um, we expect it to be. Um, you know, those people were at higher risk for this problem. Um, other risks are, um, you know, they showed that actually in this study, doing a can opener decreased your chance of, uh, you know, having this happen versus a continuous curvilinear capsular axis. I don't think that would make any of us want to switch back to that. Um, and that, um, you know, that sealing of the um, capsular excess over the optic all the way around with no gaps can also, um, you know, be a risk factor for that. I think, you know, we all try to get just a little bit of overlap, not too much overlap um, in order to, you know, get a stable covering of the optic. Um, but I don't think that would cause any of us to change how we make our capsular excess but certainly something to look for in the early and the late post-operative um, periods. It can come at pretty much any time, anywhere from weeks to months after surgery, and in, the, you know, in this case, possibly years later. It's been associated um, uh, with sometimes you know, intraoperatively it can occur too. And this lady, of course, it didn't happen intraoperatively, 
but um, it can occur. And I, and there was a, a guy um, that I went to residency with uh, and we were, you know, in our third year at the VA and um, he had done a hydrodissection and blew out the posterior capsule. And I thought, how does that happen? You know, I've never heard of that, you know, and it's been one of these fears that I carried with me because, you know, he was one of my good friends and he's learning how to do cataract surgery and he does hydrodissection and blows out the capsule. Well, this is what happened. You know, he hydrodissected a little aggressively, wanted to get that lens moving. He was, you know, young and inexperienced and uh, blew out the posterior capsule because that fluid got trapped back there. So, you know, I think, you know, as far as that goes, when you're an early surgeon, you know, learning how to burp that fluid forward as you do your hydrodissection can prevent that from happening. It's so great to hear your personal anecdotes because I feel like that was one of my first fears when I was learning cataract surgery because everyone swore that was something that could happen. Thankfully, we don't see it as much anymore because we're all told from day one, be very careful during hydrodissection or you'll blow the bag, but definitely something to keep in mind. So with this patient, how would you approach treatment for them? Are there any differences if this were early postoperative versus late postoperative capsular distension syndrome? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. You know, her capsule is clear. That's the dilemma. So if you, if she had capsular opacity, it would be very simple, right? We just do her um, laser, yeah, laser capsulotomy and that all of that fluid is going to go into the vitreous and she's going to see well again. Anytime you have a clear capsule, you kind of have to wonder, is this the best choice? Personally, I probably would have still done it um, in this case, but there are alternatives. If you can create a little space in the anterior capsule, depending on how much overlap you have, you can create a pathway forward for that fluid if you want to preserve the posterior capsule. So you can do a YAG laser to the edge of the capsule in one area um, and create a pathway forward. Now, one of the problems with that method is now you can potentially have, um, you know, cellular material or inflammatory contacts, contents in the anterior chamber, which you might have to deal with with a topical anti-inflammatory or, um, you know, it may cause some increased pressure if you have some of that debris clogging your trabecular meshwork, causing a, an IOP rise. So sometimes if you're going to do that, you might want to keep that patient there, check to see if they have like a little post-op spike um, and just empirically treat them with a mild steroid, a lotoprednol or something like that for about a week. Um, when that comes, you know, that dilemma presents itself and you're trying to decide with a clear capsule um, I'm always very reserved about doing capsulotomies in diabetics. We know really consistent data over history shows that once you open that, that posterior capsule, you increase the chance of a worsening of diabetic retinopathy or, you know, and I think in, in a case like that, I would probably try to vent it forward. If that capsule is clear, if they have a lot of um, you know, retinal pathology, multiple retinal surgeries, keeping that barrier between the anterior part of the eye and the posterior part of the eye is really important um, for preventing problems with like CME or, you know, decreasing your chance of retinal detachment in a very long eye. So you kind of have to think, you know, about the whole eye and the patient's whole health when you decide, do you want to do a YAG posterior capsulotomy 
or do you want to try and vent it anteriorly? And, you know, after three years, there's some pretty good fibrosis there. So I'm not really worried too much about making um, a little incision with the YAG um, of the anterior capsule if I can accomplish that in a high-risk patient. This episode of PupilPod is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. That's a really excellent pearl. And I think one that we don't necessarily always think of, we generally go straight for the posterior capsule, but in cases like this, that seems like something that could really benefit certain patients. Yeah, I think that it's a, it's a lesson in looking at the whole patient and not again, getting trapped in our knee jerk reaction to something that we're used to. Um, it's just taking that moment pause to decide, I have a couple choices let me look at the patient as a whole and figure out what's in their best interest, what's not necessarily easier and simpler for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. All very, very important points. So, I mean, these are such rare cases and now hopefully our listeners, myself will remember that this is a possibility to look for it and that we might need to treat this a little bit different than we would normally think. But what about the most common complicate, capsular complication after cataract surgery? So there's one that we all know like the back of our hand, but can we go through that in a little bit more detail? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So unlike capsular block syndrome, um, posterior capsular opacity is probably the most common post-operative reason that patients come in complaining of decreased vision. The AAO um, released uh, a study in two... Uh, 2023 that showed that anywhere from 20 to 50% of patients within two to five years of cataract surgery develop PCO. I think those numbers are probably a little bit skewed, but maybe not. Um, you know, I think that our new methodologies of cataract surgery, more advanced type lenses and structures of lenses may shift that number, but it's super common and, you know, it's so common that we tell our patients that before we do their surgery, that this is most likely going to happen at some point, anywhere from months to years after surgery. You know, some of the risks for this um, are related to the age of the patient. So younger patients, you know, they're more inflammatory anyway. They heal faster. They're at higher risk. Again, you know, patients um, with longer eyes, you know, Longer-eyed people are higher risk for a lot of things. Um, diabetes also put people at risk for many things, including um, PCO. Um, and you know, a hard lens, um, you know, that had a lot of adhesion to the capsule, had a lot of conversion from the cortex to the nuclear component of their lens. They're at higher risk for capsular opacity. Anytime you have retinal surgery or injections for wet macular degeneration, anything that irritates that capsule um, is more likely to cause posterior capsular opacity. And certainly we know um, that uveitis, chronic steroids, not only causes 
cataracts, but it also increases the chance of developing posterior capsular opacity. Um, and over the years, it's been studied wide, wide, widely um, that the shape of the edge of the lens plays a big role with a square versus a um, curved um, edge of the implant. Um, it's, it's thought that the, the square edge kind of blocks that uh, those lenticular cells that remain behind from migrating um, behind the lens onto the capsule. Um, I don't think it's 100%. Uh, I have a pl used plenty of square-edged lenses that still get PCO. Um, I think it's extremely important to do um, capsular polish. I do both um, manual and IA polish of the posterior capsule. So I do a, uh, an IA polish first, and I include the anterior leaflets that remain to remove any kind of cells that are on there. And then sometimes you get this posterior capsular adhesions that you just can't get off with the IA polish. And so I use um, a catheter with a very small silicone tip on the end of a syringe. And I kind of can scrape along the posterior capsule to release some of those stringy cortical pieces or any other kind of adhesions while I'm irrigating BSS. And I find that if I do a combination of that, it doesn't take very long. It might take you, you know, 10 seconds more or 15 seconds more to do that. But I do find that the cleaner you make the capsule, the longer patients have with a clear capsule before they develop posterior capsular opacities. Um, I used to make, so in my career, I started out with making really small capsular excess because I was afraid it was going to run out, right? I was terrified that I would lose sight of it under the iris. I couldn't bring it back. And um, what it made me is really good at doing small pupil cataract surgery because I created these tiny capsular excess and um, I had to get all those pieces out through that little tiny hole. And I created a lot of other things um, you know, like phimosis and things like that. And then I said, okay, well, now I'm going to make them really big because there's all these different methods where you can tilt and tumble, bring the lens into the anterior chamber. And then I realized that, you know, the optic wasn't covered and my refractive stability was not as good. And so now I really um, try to make a five millimeter for the most part capsular excess. And um, I try to just have a, an even overlap around um, the uh, cap, the lens edge um, to, you know, stabilize and centrate the lens, but also, you know, in hopes of protecting any migration of lenticular cells um, around to the posterior capsule. So I think capsular axis is an important component in addition to polishing the capsule, um, as well as your choice of material. Uh, you know, the studies have actually shown that PMMA is the best one um, to prevent posterior capsular opacity. If I look back at some of the old timers in my practice that have old PMMA lenses, and I have to say they're few and far between at this point, um, you know, they don't, they can go forever. Like my dad had a PMMA lens and his whole life, he never developed PCO. Um, and so I think, you know, we're not going to go back that way, but uh, next probably is the um, hydrophobic uh, acrylic lenses are probably the least likely to cause um, posterior capsular opacity. Silicone lenses, hydrophilic lenses um, are all more likely to develop PCO. So 
you know, I think when we're making our surgical plan, you know, all of these things are really important um, to help us reduce um, the incidence of posterior capsular opacity or hopefully extend the period of time between when we do surgery and when they need a laser. And how do you treat these patients? Can you tell us a little bit more about the laser capsulotomy, maybe your settings, what you do in your practice, some of the risks involved? So, you know, I always have this conversation with the patients, and um, I think that's your first step is setting the expectations to the patients, because the one thing that you have to communicate is you don't need a pre-op physical, you don't need any pre-op medicines, there's no post-op restrictions, and there's no post-op medications. And we do it right here in the surgery center or in my office. Then you get a smile. Um, And then I explain to them, you know, just like I did today, you know, I dilate your eye. I put you in the same kind of machine that you just were in with a laser on the other side. I show them the lens that I use to look at the fundus. And I say, and we're going to use a lens just like this to hold your eyelids open. And that's important because they're always afraid they're going to blink. So I I always tell them, you know, don't worry about it. I'm going to use a lens that's going to hold your lids open. We're going to focus that laser on the back of the behind your lens on that cloudy capsule, on that scar tissue. We're going to pop a little painless hole in it. Takes less than a minute and off you go. Your vision's going to get better, you know, as soon as your pupil goes back to its normal size. Um, I explained to them that there are, you know, several risks to the surgery, but that they're not very common. Um, The most uh, serious is also you know, very rare, and that would be a retinal tear or retinal detachment. And I remind them that the risk after laser capsulotomy is lower than after the cataract surgery them, that itself. And I think that's a really important thing to tell patients. Um, I used to have a conversation about, you know, the lens moving, dislocation of the lens. And we mostly saw that with plate lenses and silicone lenses. They were kind of slippery, slipperier, you know, they could slide around in the capsule And um, we don't really see that now with the the lenses that we have, the single piece um, lenses. Um, But, you know, you could have that discussion with them. Um, Of course, if they're a diabetic, you're going to have to explain to them that there is a potential for worsening diabetic retinopathy. Um, You know, I think CME is not something I see commonly unless the patient has had multiple surgeries, multiple retinal surgeries, diabetes lots of other things that would put them at risk for it. And again, you have to look at the patient as a whole and really address some of the uh, risks that are particularly associated with that patient. I don't tell every patient that they have a risk of CME because I just don't see it except in patients with, who are predisposed because of other retinal issues, chronic uveitis or something like that. Um, Rarely these patients can get some inflammation. So a lot of times, or I wouldn't say a lot of times, sometimes they have um, a lot of material in that capsular opacity. And when you laser it, you can see it released into the vitreous. It kind of makes this big cloud um, of white uh, stuff. And those people, I put on uh, a load of prednol just empirically four times a day for a week um, just to treat anything that might come of that. Um, I think, you you know, you always have to worry if you see something unusual. And there have been some things that have been unusual. Um, one of the things that um, people always ask is, can this happen again? Can I get this, this, well, I need this laser again. 
And I would have said no. I have had some patients who years after uh, YAG capsulotomy have come in with decreased vision. Um, and on examination, they have sort of a membrane that has grown over and around the opening of their capsulotomies. And sometimes we think this looks like an endophthalmitis or piacnes or something like that. Um, and um, I actually had one patient where I couldn't figure out what it was, put him on steroids and all these things, sent him for a vitreous tap and uh, still nothing grew. We didn't know what it was, sent him back to the retina specialist. He actually did a biopsy of the membrane and the capsular flaps that were um, back there and uh, turned out that asteroid hyalosis can cause this sort of inflammatory membrane and precipitation on the capsular flaps and cause a loss of vision um, after YAG capsulotomy. It's not very common, but it is something. So when patients ask me, I don't say never. Now I say extremely rarely. Um, so those are some of the things to, to think about when you're talking to patients about their, their laser. I mean, I would have also said the same, but I think once you do, what do they say? What's the quote? When you do something long enough, you see everything or there's nothing you haven't seen. So this is just such a high yield episode. And I feel like we went through some content that every single person that listens to this episode will be able to refer back to and remember in their clinics, because these are the patients that we take care of every single day. Absolutely. Dr. Fulner, before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? Hmm, that is such a tough question. For me, you know, uh, female role models are always, you know, number one on my list. And I have to say my mom, who passed away 10 years ago, would have been my number one, but she would take a whole podcast to explain in and of itself. So I won't dwell on her, but there is a person who I learned about recently, and her name is Yursa Mardini. And um, she's a Syrian refugee who um, I, I only learned about her because I watched a movie on Netflix called The Swimmers. And um, she fled with her sister in 2015 from Syria, and her whole dream, her whole life was to be an Olympic swimmer for Syria. And her father's dream was for her to be an Olympic swimmer. And um, she fled with her sister and, and the story of what these young people went through and what they suffered. And she swam three hours across the Aegean Sea, um, you know, and pulled a, a, a boat full of other people with her sister to safety and traveled on foot through Europe and did all of these things and ended up in a refugee camp. And even once she was there, her only goal was to get back in the pool and swim and be an Olympic swimmer. And in fact, in 2016, um, she was in the Rio Olympics under, um, you know, a refugee team um, and was in a second Olympics. And it's is just really an amazing woman with her sister. They, they fight for awareness um, of what, you know, refugees around the world are going through. And, like, I think I'm a strong person and, you know, I'm smart and talented and, but I've been given a pathway to my life, you know, and I'm not going to say I didn't fight for anything. I did. I fought the whole way. I worked really hard, but to be able to sit with somebody 
who's had a single-minded goal that defied all odds and achieved that goal against all odds and now, you know, uses, you know, her story to help other people in the world. I just think she's magnificent. Like I would love to meet her. What a truly beautiful story. I think I had heard about it, but I didn't know the depth. And it's just so amazing that you chose her, first of all, especially you being the strong female role model that you are to young ophthalmologists, but also just to highlight the resilience and dedication that women have if given the opportunity and the ability to succeed against all odds. It's really just so, so beautiful. You know, and she comes from a country where women are are really repressed. So in so many ways, she was repressed and so many people would have given up and she never gave up to the very end, to the very end. And, and if you haven't seen the movie or read about her, I really believe that um, her story gives us all such a perspective and a healthy perspective and gives us all wisdom in, on how we want to live our lives and how we perceive situations and struggles and battles. Um, it really just gives a whole different perspective. Um, and I think everyone can learn something from her. That's so beautiful. I'm definitely going to check that out. And it's just always so important for us to not only recognize our own privilege, like you said, but also to always remember that there's just so much that each person is just such a complex organism with so much to give and so much to offer in terms of wisdom to those around them. So Dr. Fulner, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Pupil Pod. I certainly learned a lot. I know that our audience will learn a lot listening to this episode. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. And I love what you're doing. And I applaud you for your efforts to share knowledge broadly uh, with your peers. Thank you. And thank you to those tuning in. See you next time on The Pupil Pod.